Hey everyone, before we get into today's episode, I want to tell you about Blue Wire Hustle, a brand new program where you can host your very own podcast at Blue Wire. Hustle was created to give everyone an opportunity to take your podcast to the next level. As part of the program, you receive personal cover art, Q&As with Blue Wire's top podcasters, access to community discord, and an e-learning course full of tips and tricks. The best part is you can get this for 15 bucks a month, which is the same rate as any other hosting site would charge you for the initial setup. To apply, go to bwhustle.com join. Check out the description box for this episode to find out more, but that's bwhustle.com join. Welcome to Burn It All Down, the feminist sports podcast you need. It's Brenda here. Hi, flamethrowers. Wanting to wish you a happy holiday and new year. As is tradition on this podcast, at the end of the year, we have a best of segment episode, which is the one you're listening to now. For the year in review, check out last week's episode 185. And also look for the best of interviews on episode 187 for next week. On this one, there's going to be just a brief intro from Amira, Jessica, and myself to the segments that we've selected as our favorites for this year. That's going to be episodes on athlete activism, climate change, and also an episode on our most joyous moments in sport. I think everyone is okay with seeing an end to 2020. But it's nice to remember that not all was lost, and even in a global pandemic, lots of good things, political and otherwise, happened. So I hope you enjoy the segments that we found most compelling from this year. Hi, y'all. Jessica here. This segment is from episode 164, which we recorded in mid-June. In it, Amira, Shireen, and I talk about athlete activism and the return of sports, This was, if you can remember, that far back, just before most sports returned. We discussed and speculated about what we thought would happen to the activism and organizing we'd seen athletes doing for months up to that point, once sports, and the playing of sports, took center stage again. It's fun to listen back now and to think about what we got right and what we got wrong, if we got anything wrong, and to continue considering the future of athlete activism as we enter 2021. On today's show, we're going to talk about athlete activism, if sports returning is good or bad for activism, and what happens with athlete activism once sports are actually back. So the NBA is trying to return to play down in Orlando sometime soon. This past week, Commissioner Adam Silver was on ESPN talking about the return of sports when he said this, quote, We think for the country, it will be a respite from enormous difficulties people are dealing with in their lives right now. And I also think in terms of social justice issues, it will be an opportunity for NBA players and the greater community to draw attention to these issues because the world's attention will be on the NBA in Orlando, Florida, if we are able to pull this off. And when I saw this clip, I immediately sent it to my co-host and said, can we please talk about this this week? Because we're in this particular time, unlike any of us have experienced before, with the overlap of this pandemic that has caused radical changes in how we do basically anything that concerns more than three people. And the protesting against racial injustice that is taking place in all 50 states and multiple countries around the world. 
So in the same breath, Silver said the NBA returning will be a respite, a distraction, a balm for what is happening in the world, but also a way to draw attention to what is happening in the world. So which is it? And can it be both? When sports return, will they drown out the activism and organizing around racial injustice and for that matter, the seriousness surrounding the pandemic? Or will sports serve as a vehicle through which athletes and coaches can talk about these things to a large audience? Additionally, we've talked on this show about athletes speaking up and out about racial injustice more broadly, but also specifically within sport. And this week, there was more of that, with some college football players challenging their coaches' shitty racist politics, such as at Oklahoma State, and others questioning if they can trust their coaches when it comes to their health and COVID, such as at UCLA. That all works now, but I wonder what this will mean once sports actually starts back up. Will the normal power dynamics that exist shift back into place and the silence of players follow? Will athletes who've been speaking up about racial injustice, especially white players, stop and blame their silence on their focus on the game? I have all these questions around this and the perfect person is here. So Amira, what do you think about this? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I love how you set it up, right? Like you can't have it both ways. And I think it's very interesting discussion to have. Um, I think that there is a lot of evidence to suggest that in this global pandemic, we are now well aware of how much sport really takes up space in society. Time, obviously money, but just time in terms of what we talk about and what we analyze. And I think that we've talked about it here. I've talked about it in conversation with Dr. Harry Edwards and Kevin Blackstone, et cetera, that in this moment, part of the reason we've had space to talk about these protests or talk about other things is because sports is not taking up that that space that it usually does. And so I think there's a lot of evidence to suggest that the absence of sport is reifying platforms to speak out against. And I understand the feeling like, oh, well, when I'm playing again, my platform only grows because more eyes are on that. But the other thing is this, the system is like kind of Right now, I feel like it's kind of ground to like a halt. And I, I'm like literally picturing um, those like interlocking gears, gears starting yeah. up again. <laughs> and the thing about when those gears start up again and the system starts moving is that, yes, you have a platform, but now you have media coverage in a prescribed way, right? You have the 20 minutes before a game or after a game, right? You have all of this analysis about what happened on on the court. You have the regular system moving that is giving you the platform you've always had. But, you know, maybe under this umbrella, athletes who have demonstrated that they now feel more compelled to speak out, perhaps because they feel less precarious or more energized or whatever it is, maybe that will make it different. But other than that, to me, those gears starting is also power reasserting itself. I think to me, that instance is really emblematic of this moment is that you still are going to have racist coaches. You still are going to have outside power dynamic where they are controlling playing time, where they're controlling scholarships, where they're controlling jobs at the professional level. We haven't changed the inherently racist structure of a lot of these teams. And so the idea that you know, returning to play is only going to expand platforms, I think is really naive. And I think that this withholding of their labor because everything's ground to a halt has really allowed um, various things to be exposed and for platforms to arise in this moment. And the more and more athletes like Kyrie and, and you know, people who 
call into question what returning to play looks like, the more and more they're seizing their labor force. And we're seeing this in terms of unionization. We're seeing this in like a return to the drawing board about play, uh, about CBAs. And I think that that has only come out of the absence of actually playing. And so that's kind of where I am about it. But I think it's certainly a very interesting debate to have. Yeah. I mean, I have so many things to say in response to that. I do want to mention as far as like the gears starting up again and what it will look like. Shireen recently did a hot take with Meg Linehan and Stephanie Ying about the NWSL's Challenge Cup that's coming up. And one thing that I remember Meg talking about is that she's not really sure like what access she'll have to players. Like we don't even know what media and therefore the platform itself will actually look like on the other side of this. Of course, if you're like LeBron James, you know, it's a different thing. But I do sort of wonder for players who are out there that maybe maybe pre and post game isn't a big thing for them normally. And this is actually a bigger platform right now because, as you said, there's an absence. So I was thinking about that. I would like to mention, you know, you're talking about Kyrie. Uh, there are a couple people who gave really good quotes about this. Lou Williams, he's a Clippers guard. He said, quote, in the six week, he's talking about like in the future, right, when the NBA gets going. He says, in six weeks, the world may need some healing. They may need us to be on the floor. But if more black kids and more black adults or any adults that's dealing with police brutality are getting killed and we're still outraged, I don't know if it's in our best interest to suit up because it looks like we don't care. You know what I mean? It's just a fine balance we're trying to create. I thought that was really interesting as far as what it looks like when the players suit up as far as racial injustice. I also think, what does that mean for COVID? Like, is this showing like it's not a big deal anymore when it's clearly still a big deal and again, affects disproportionately which communities? And then I wanted to mention Steven Jackson, a former NBA player. I think he played for 14 years. Um, He's been in the news a lot because he's a close friend of George Floyd's. And this is what Steven Jackson had to say, quote, I love the NBA, man. That's my family. But now ain't the time to be playing basketball, y'all. Now ain't the time. Playing basketball is going to do one thing, take all the attention off the task at hand right now and what we're fighting for. Everybody's going to be worried about the playoffs. They're going to have all that blasting all over the TV. And nobody's going to be talking about getting justice for all these senseless murders by the police. And nobody's going to be focused on the tax at hand, bro. So, I mean, players are really talking about this. And they're worried about what this will mean. Amira? Yeah, I love that point, Jessica, because you can already see the narratives of sports as this, like, grand healing communal space where everybody's coming together like all the narratives of unity sports is always so ready for that and i think that it that's i think you nailed it because i couldn't even articulate it but that is my fear that people sitting up and going back on will send signals like we're on this together we've made it here's a wonderful fun distraction covid is over racism is over look at our multiracial team coming together to win like it's ready made to advance advance these narratives of unity that allied the struggles that are still happening on multiple fronts. Yeah, I agree. And I wanted to go back to a point that Amira made before about power dynamics, especially in college sports, especially college football. We talked about this on the show, but back in 2015, the Missouri football team boycotted or they threatened to boycott a game, forced the resignation of the president of Missouri after there were multiple racist incidents on campus and other uh, students were had already organized. There was already a student who was doing a hunger strike at the time, but it was really the football team coming together uh, and saying, we're not going to play against BYU next weekend that, that forced the hand of the university. They have that kind of power. And so one thing that's been interesting is watching all these players speak up in this one moment. I love it. I, I want college athletes to 
feel empowered and to do that because they do have power. But I really, the real cynical part of me thinks unless they're going to boycott the actual playing, if they're not going to do it in season, then I'm not sure it really matters uh, in the end. Like, And I, I think Chuba was a really good, terrible example of this. Amira, did you have anything else on that? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the lessons from Mizzou, um, which I think you're absolutely right, like it's happening in season, it's happening days before they're supposed to play. A million dollars is on the line, right? And compelled all this action that Black students had been asking for for a year until they linked up with athletics, it got done in 48 hours. Um, But the other thing that happened with that is that the coach stood by them. The coach affirmed their position and what they quietly wrote in to contracts in the wake of that was that coaches could not stand with players in these moments anymore, right? And I think that that's really instructive. So if you want to do more reading or if you want to um, interested, there is a history of athletic protests, particularly in uh, college football at the end of the 60s. And uh, I just did an interview for the Chronicle of the Higher Ed where I, I kind of go deeper into this. But one of the things I want to highlight is that one of the things that happens as you start getting integration and you get into these leagues, I mean, basically in the 60s, there was maybe one or two black athletes in all of these big kind of white school powerhouse football teams. By the by the 70s, that number was like 20 to 30. And by the 80s, of course, 40% of players in the SEC, football players in the SEC were black. So you have a huge demographic shift. And right at the late 80s and early 70s, a lot of these athletes started to protest, especially in 1969. And you saw a boycott, you saw claims, you saw, you know, pamphlets, it's very similar to what you're seeing now. And a lot of it, some of the points were even similar, hire black coaching staff, right? Some of them overlap with the concerns of black students who are non-athletes, hire more black professors, um, put special scholarship aid for us, et cetera, et cetera. But one of the things that I want to draw attention to is that in the wake of these college protests by black college athletes, quietly in January of 1973, the NCAA passed legislation that replaced four-year athletic scholarship making it a one-year renewable grant, right? So when we talk about the precarity of scholarships even not being fully guaranteed, we can look at this happening in 1973 on the heels of of multiple efforts of protest by college athletes as one of the ways to see when I talk about power reasserting itself, that's what it looks like, right? It looks like systematically changing it so that when you're giving scholarship to somebody, it's on a one-year renewable contract. That shifts the power back to the coaching staff, back to the school. So now it's much harder to mobilize if you can be easily dismissed. It's much harder to mobilize if your if your scholarship's not going to be renewed. It's much harder to mobilize in the NCA currently has transfer rules if you're going to have to sit out if you transfer. If part of getting a waiver to not sit out is saying you're leaving the school because of these issues, you need to get a letter from the school affirming your account, which means schools would be expected to provide letters saying, yeah, we did treat them unfairly. That's not going to happen. This is what the structure looks like, and which is why it's so hard to sustain this protest at the college level. And then the other thing that happens is people graduate. And so I think they leave. And so I think that that's kind of what I'm I'm seeing in this moment when I'm thinking about that history of college protest. I'm looking and I'm saying, what's, what feels new about this? What feels new is that it feels like it's popping up all the way around. And I'm hoping that it's sustained. And I think that what history compels us to do is watch the details, is watch for those moments where things are written in or legislation is slightly changed in order to Tip balance of power again. And so I think that's one of the places we need to keep our eye on. 
That's all so interesting. And so then we like, let's shift back to the professional level where, you know, players have a lot of power in different ways than collegiate athletes. But still, even when they're using this platform, they, they are playing, they have the platform. We see that that can even still be, I don't know, corrupted or fucked up or messed up, whatever the right wording is here. Uh, Shireen, you have a good example of this. I do. I'm very mad about this. I found out last night and I had a great day yesterday. And of course, I shouldn't check Twitter half an hour before bedtime because inevitably Serie A, Italian professional soccer, is going to make me very angry in its anti-blackness. So what ended up happening is there's a Serie A team. And we don't talk a lot about Serie A on this show because every example we ever bring up is of racism. <laughs> so uh, in, uh, literally, it's the only time I think we've gone into detail about Serie A except for Champs League. But my point is, is that Torino was playing Palermo yesterday. It was a 1-1 draw. And there is a player, a defender for Torino. His name is Nicholas Nicolou. And he, after he scored, he took a knee. And it's a very profound thing. And there was a, you know, the club internal statement that goes out in the newsletter that goes up, out after the after the game, after the match. He said that he thought immediately, immediately about his brother Floyd. Now, Nukulu is a Cameroonian player who plays in Serie A. And it, it's a beautiful thing to think that at one point, UEFA used to fine the players for doing this, for any political movement. But now they're not. And just recently, like I think about three weeks ago, they had said that they would definitely not be fining the players. There would be no financial penalty or whatnot. So the photo was captured. The problem with the photo that whoever's working the comms and PR team at Torino, they captured a photo, not just of him kneeling, but he's kneeling what looks like in front of a white player who's standing there looking at him. I don't know who the said white player is. Don't know why he couldn't get the fuck out of the frame or why the photographer couldn't edit said frame. But what happens here is that the message that like Nicolou is trying gets overshadowed by this furiously and horribly racist imagery. And he looks like he's kneeling before this white guy and you're going to tag that with Black Lives Matter. First of all, I like I'm so angry at the photo editor. Like, how is this okay? And do you know why this is okay? This is manipulation. And and, and in fairness, um, Professor Siki Maria, who has been on the show before, she replied with, remember the banana incident? Like, this is a the, the monkey incident. This is by design. So they know because there was reaction to it. They could have taken it and done it better. But the problem is clearly everybody working in Torino and their comms team on the PR team is not a person or a BIPOC is not a, they, the um, acronym in Europe is B-A-M-E, Black, Asian, Middle Eastern. There's nobody there of color working there to be able to say this is problematic. And so they, it was even worse when all of this erupted last night, they doubled down again and changed the heading to, you know, instead of Black Lives Matter, they just took a quote from the player. But the problem is you don't see that the photograph is problematic. You don't see what the imagery is doing. You don't see how you're being unhelpful in posting something like this. And that's my problem is that I struggle with, I want the movement of the players and their actions and their, you know, their sincerity to be showcased, but it gets distracted when you've got people and corollary people that are completely like fucking up all the time. And that makes me really mad, but that also points down to very much. We know in sports, media is complicit. Media is 100% complicit. And I'm just really quickly going to read you something 
that a friend of mine, his name is Jesse Wente. He's an indigenous writer. He was on a radio interview with Metro Morning, an incredibly popular radio show in Toronto. And what he said was media in both the U.S. and Canada are also creations from within colonial states. And while they may confront power occasionally, they tend to uphold the underpinnings of those states, namely capitalism and white supremacy, which makes them ill-equipped or unwilling to appropriately cover movements that directly challenge those things, which we are seeing now. Jesse Wente said this, and that applies to Europe as well. That 100% applies, the lens with which they look. This is why I'm always screaming about having, I don't even like the word diverse. I hate that word now because diverse, you often translate to white women. I want racialized people working in sports media and I want them on comms teams because this is offensive and it just it needs to be undone completely. Wow, that became a burn yeah, pile I- real fast, didn't it? <laughs> and I think like one of the, so what we're do what we're what we've landed on right is that the system itself is messed up in so many ways and it's incredibly powerful and so as soon as the system as Amira said like shifts back in to gear and and gets going we have a real fear that like the media will mess this up the photo editors will mess this up the college football the college athletic system will go back into place everyone will get silenced all these things will just return to normal and so one thing that we're seeing is some athletes have decided to just step outside the system to say the system is not is not the place the athletic system is not the place where I'm going to do this work. Shereen, do you want to talk to us a little bit about this? A beautiful example of somebody who's doing this is Maya Moore. And we've talked about it on the show and we've talked about it in a way that's her literally stepping away from the court where she was hugely successful and legendary in order to do other stuff and incredibly important, you know, literally trying to dismantle the injustice, the racial injustice against black prisoners. And she's helped out people that have been victims of white supremacy in the justice system. Like Maya Moore is literally creating a blueprint for how athletes can do this. I think we can all admit that 2020 has reshaped how we work, not only as workers, but also as employers. Businesses across the globe have been challenged to be their most efficient, which means every hire is critical. And Indeed is here to help. Now Indeed's new way of matching you with candidates instantly delivers a short list of quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed match your job criteria, and you can contact them the moment you sponsor a job, making Indeed the only job site that can move as fast as you do. So ignore all of that talk on the show about restorative, calm, tranquil, meditative states and get on the move. Right now, Indeed is offering our listeners a free $75 credit to boost your job post, which means more quality candidates will see it fast. Try Indeed out with a $75 credit at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. It is their best offer available anywhere. So go right now. This offer is valid through December 31st. Terms and conditions, as always and everywhere, apply. That was great. You sounded like one of those commercial people. I sounded like a commercial person? Yeah. (laughs) Did I? Did I? It was funny. You think they might fire me? No. No. (laughs) No. But, um, if they do, I'll go to Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> Shut up, Brenda. <laughs> oh, okay. That was funny, Mom. Thanks. Indeed.com. <laughs> <laughs> okay.
I have some bad news, y'all. My Uncle Quentin has been under the weather. So he hasn't been calling me, so I couldn't tell him to go to bet online to do all his football prop bets. But I think that in his honor, I'm going to go to bet online. And I can't, you know, I don't do sports stuff. But like I told you before, there is so much more content on bet online than just sports. And this is really what I'm here for. I told you that you could do political odds if you're like really sadistic and still into caring at all about this stupid government. Um, But I'm over there hanging out in the Grammy section. You know, one of my favorite things that I have my eye on is record of the year. Right now, Don't Start Now by Dua Lupia is negative 75, which means something for betters. I still don't know. What I do know is one of the other options is my favorite song of the year. So that is what I will be betting for. Yes, that is Houston's Finest, Meg Thee Stallion, and Beyonce on the Savage Remix. It was literally the best. All proceeds went to Houston food banks. This is why I'm a terrible gambler, though, is because, like, I don't think about, like, what the odds are like the little numbers I'm looking they are they're like a plus 400 I don't know what that means I do know I really like that song so (laughs) is that not you would give it a plus 400 I would if you were sure yeah is that a good thing (laughs) I don't know but I did want to also give you an update last time I told you that you could also bet on hot dogs and I told you the over under for Joey Chestnut was 74 and a half but I completely forgot shame on me about the women's side of competitive eating and so that has led me down the rabbit hole of one Miki Sudo who's currently ranked fifth in the world in major league eating did you know major league eating was its own no. Major League? Okay. Major League Eating. <laughs> she currently holds four world records in kimchi, hot dish, ice cream, and of course, the women's world record for hot dogs, which brings me to what you can lay a bet on if you want to back Miko Sudo in her hot dog eating pursuit. The over and under for her hot dog consumption is 45 and a half hot dogs. They're even odds right now. Again, this competitive eating hot dog contest for 2021 is June 30th. So you do have about six months to lay your best, but don't delay. Get to bet online today to do Grammys and things that come sooner. And while you're there, go bet on hot dogs too. Next up in our best segments of 2020, comes from episode 172, where all of us come together to discuss climate change's impact on sports. Lindsay, Brenda, Shireen, Jessica, and myself discussed many of the ways in which climate change and its catastrophic effects were affecting how sports were practiced and played throughout the world. We recorded this episode towards the end of September, after Hurricane Laura had devastated the Gulf Coast, and while wildfires were ravishing the West Coast. While we use these two things as launching off points, we widen our lens to really take a global perspective on this global problem. Sadly, many of the discussions that we have around climate change are so relevant six months from now, a year from now, a few years from now. And our discussion here on sports and climate change is no different. It's one of the reasons this episode was so impactful and meaningful to us and is very relevant today. And also definitely something we think about as 2020 comes to a close. Check it out. 
All right. Right now, fires are raging on the West Coast of the United States. Uh, This past week, we've seen these fires really alter the sports world through cancellations and postponements. This is nothing new. Climate change's impact on the sports world is everywhere. Today, we're going to take some time to talk about that impact on a global scale and a local scale and look at what the future might bring. Shireen, can you take us through what's been happening this week in particular? Yes, thanks. We know that the wildfires are raging through California, Oregon, and Washington State. And one of the things that we know is that this particular catastrophe environmentally will affect major league sports and pro sports. For example, a lot of the leagues have what could be considered an AQI policy, which is an air quality index policy, but they are still pretty behind. For example, they have some have postponed their training, some have postponed their practices, but 49ers coach Kyle Shanahan said that it was like an apocalyptic state, but the air quality doesn't seem as bad as it looks. And I mean, the thing is, we have to look at this and how it'll affect the athletes and the teams and the trainers. So we've got NFL, MLB, MLS, and NWSL spending a huge amount of time monitoring air quality. The Portland Thorns season opener was postponed against OL Rain, and that's been rescheduled to September 30th. But according to Professor Maddie Orr, who's a professor at SUNY Cortland and coordinator of the Sports Ecology Group, and I'm quoting from an ESPN article, she says, I can unequivocally say there will be more fires moving forward. And American pro sports leagues are really far behind, frankly, when it comes to policy change on these issues. So although there may be some movement, there is still much more to do. Uh, For example, Caitlin Best, sports writer, women's soccer, got some info from a league spokesperson. And an AQI of 200 is an automatic cancellation for the NWSL. And just for those that don't understand, zero to 500 is how they measure air quality. Mostly it's been under the 200s, but 150 to 200 is unhealthy and above 300 is hazardous. So these are some serious numbers we're dealing with. Uh, Jess, I know this has also impacted a sport that is very close to your family's heart. Yeah, so a lot of my friends on the West Coast, one thing that I saw when they were posting alongside their pictures of the orange and gray skies that they were experiencing was how they couldn't, they were noting that they couldn't go outside and so they couldn't exercise at all. And I was thinking about the ways in which climate change is affecting one of the most basic sports, which is running, right? You put on your shoes, you go outside and you, and you run. And that that world in particular has been dealing with ever-increasing issues around climate change. And I've talked about this before. I think the most obvious example is marathon running because it has such a formal structure to it. And I, of course, I keep up with it because I live with a marathon runner who tells me all the time about the weather when I don't care about it. Um, but I've talked about this on here before. So the marathon for Tokyo 2020, which maybe will happen next summer, but in the prep for this summer, they moved it to the north of the country and they were going to potentially start it in the middle of the night to avoid athletes having heat stroke because the temperatures are so high now, as so many actually did when they did the IAAF World Athletics Championship in Doha last year. Maybe you'll remember all the pictures of the women marathoners just all over the something like 40% of them didn't finish the race. So I kept thinking about that this week as I heard from more and more friends that couldn't even go for walks forget trying to run. Of course, there's one country that's specifically known for its distant running prowess that has been incredibly 
incredibly impacted by all this. Amira, do you want to talk about Kenya? Yeah, I do. Climate change is impacting the region there in many ways, but one of which to keep an eye on is the Great Rift Valley in Kenya, which has been experiencing intense flooding. It has already caused evacuations and displacements, and one of the continuing concerns there is that the water level in two of their main lakes, Lake Baringo and Lake Boriaga, are rising and they could merge. Just to give you context, the lakes used to be 12 miles apart. Now they were just eight miles apart. And one is the Alkine Link and one is fresh water, so the cross-contamination could be disastrous for wildlife. To learn more about this, I reached out to my colleague, Dr. Michelle Sykes, who studies distance running in Kenya, and here's part of what she had to say. Right now, Kenya is experiencing a number of environmental challenges, from flooding to the worst invasion of locusts that the country has seen in a generation. These crises are worrying and may affect the sports world because people and communities in Kenya's Rift Valley where almost all of the nation's distance runners live and train, heavily rely on farming and natural resource-based livelihoods generally. Increasing severity of climate change has obvious negative effects on farming, which mean that people will not be able to focus as much on sport when food supply and alternative livelihood prospects are under threat. Since most runners in the region are aspiring athletes whose pursuit of success on the track and the roads depend directly or indirectly on farming, and they cannot solely rely on running to make ends meet, the destabilizing effect of climate change and its accompanying impact on the sport of distance running itself may be great. Bren? Yeah, staying on Kenya for a minute, I mean, one of the things that has also caused more pressure in Kenya is the number of refugees that have come from Sudan in particular, but other places. It's pretty troubling how the environmental crises are contributing to an increased refugee population. So we know that refugees are at an all-time high, about 80 million people. That's double since 1990, probably half of which or more are children. That's such a good point. I'm always amazed when I really start to think about it, about just how many different types of impacts climate change is having. Of course, you have the rising sea levels, which, you know, here in the United States, um, there's a lot of talk about how this is impacting the stadiums in Miami and New York and Jacksonville and Oakland. These mega million dollar stadiums are being built knowing that these seas, if climate change continues, they're going to be wiped out. Um, you've also, of course, got snow sports and winter sports industries that are obviously incredibly impacted. We have droughts that are making it very expensive to maintain the grass fields that are needed. And of course, I'm always just think about Jordan McNair dying of heat stroke, the um, Maryland football player last May, and um, how we're just going to keep seeing more of that if policies don't start to change to really impact climate change. Um, And of course, this is all just in the United States. Brenda, the disruption is worldwide. Yeah, actually, the United Nations has called on sports bodies to sign different types of accords that they will try to be carbon free by 2050. I think that is basically a joke to most of them, but it's pretty scary. BBC came out with a report recently on the impact of flooding on English football, where they expected about a quarter of the fields to experience flooding this season and ongoing. Then there's weather disasters like the typhoon in Japan, which we remember impacted rugby union worlds last year. And then Indian cricket officials who have long given up on air quality 
are now saying the problem is the temperatures and most of the venues can hit 104. So it's pretty frightening. The United Nations is targeting sports as one of the areas that could contribute to forming some policies that others could model. Yeah, unfortunately, it seems that these organizations are all more interested in offsetting their own carbon footprint than in really making changes that will uh, help the world. And it's infuriating, like when you read about how much more money and resources they're put in just to justify spending and building these ridiculous stadiums, which of course getting into the economics of the stadium building and the displacement and the gentrification. That's a whole other topic. But let's just look at this at the Viking Stadium, Minnesota Viking Stadium. The stadium offsets all its energy with renewable energy credits, and it has committed to being a zero-waste facility, which is all great stuff. Similarly, uh, UEFA was trying to, when we were supposed to have the European Championships this summer, were trying to offset their carbon footprint. But once again, they were doing all this while holding an event that would have added extensive air travel to the world. So we're not going backwards any. We're just trying to make these mega million dollar events have less of an impact. I was noting that Stephen Ross, the Miami Dolphins owner, has talked a lot about their stadium and building this Dolphins stadium so that it can withstand any of the sea changes and hurricanes and all of this stuff. He's talked about how crucial it is for sports to get involved in stopping climate change. And yet he hosted a fundraiser for Trump and donated to Trump's inauguration. (laughs) And you just can't have both. And it just really makes me wonder, we've been having all of these protests. We're trying to get these owners to really buy into ending systemic racism and using the power that they have. And it's like, What if they also use this power to really focus on changing the environment, on voting in politicians, on supporting politicians who believed in climate change, on holding their fellow billionaires accountable for the policies of their organizations? You can see by all they do for like their one stadium to make it more eco-friendly that they do have the resources when they care about it. But when it's not about their bottom line, they suddenly will vote for their tax break. Bren? I just want to, and I know this is an obvious point, but I just think it should be in here somewhere. Historically, we know that this problem has been caused by the global north, and it goes back to industrialization. Still, even the largest carbon emissions are coming from China, the United States, India, and Russia, with Russia being only about half of the United States as a sort of distant fourth. And then to have them not take as much responsibility as the place is impacted, much less the amount of responsibility they actually have. It's just so frustrating. Chile has had a, you know, hole in the ozone layer since like 1970. And in certain parts, you've had to wear this extreme sunblock. I mean, it just feels like the places that are emitting are the places, well, at least in the United States and the Northeast, the places that haven't been as impacted. And to continue to see the global north do this kind of shit is just feels so unfair. Amira? Yeah, I think it's important to talk about how these quote-unquote natural disasters and, and climate change are compounded, exasperated by environmental racism. Too often, the lack of protection, infrastructure, or relief exasperates the harm. It disproportionately affects under-resourced minority populations from Katrina to Flint to Maria. And just a few weeks ago, when Laura blew through Lake Charles in the Gulf Coast, if you're not familiar with it, I was born in Beaumont, Texas, about an hour west of Lake Charles. And the Gulf Coast stretches Florida, 
Mississippi, out Louisiana, Texas. And it's not only weathered many storms, but they're the site of so many harmful oil refineries. It's often jokingly called the Cancer Coast because of the high number of cancers, asthma, and other medical cases due to toxins in the air. In Texas, they have six of the most toxic oil refineries that emit benzene, which is a component of crude oil, gasoline, cigarette smoke. It's invisible. It's deadly. It elevates cancer rates, respiratory disease, and developmental delays in infants. When Hurricane Harvey hit two years ago, those refineries leaked around 28,000 pounds of benzene gas into the air. And that's probably a low estimate because guess what? The oil industry gets to self-report on these things. And yet these same spaces, these Gulf Coast communities have vibrant youth sports cultures, particularly football. And it is Texas (laughs) and Mississippi. This is the backdrop that they play against. And even now, in Lake Charles, with the pandemic on the rise, schools are literally missing roofs and bleachers. Gyms have been blown apart because of the storm. And yet, at least one school official this past week said, if anything, the storm and the pandemic means they should fight harder to play this fall because it is hopeful. It's reminiscent of that Olympic official who was like, the flames of the Olympic torch is going to starve out the virus. Like, hope is not actually a balm for these toxins. It, it doesn't work like that. And here's the thing the kids who do have talent who do make it out like sports is often too often seen as the only way out of a lot of these neighborhoods and areas so families do send their kids into the fray with that hope and they also hope like just hold your breath a little bit more like we know that this is the environment we're playing on but this is the way out and here's the thing for those kids who do make it out who have that talent who make it from flint we see that they become some of the biggest donators back into the area from clarissa shields passing out water in flint to puerto rican athletes who raise enormous funds in the wake of maria they end up doing the work of the failed state so when we're talking about climate change and we're talking about a pandemic that is a respiratory illness and we know it's a global problem and, and brenda just so eloquently implicated rightfully the global north within this problem but right here in our backyard we are having long-standing effects of the damage already being done and kids are playing games amongst this backdrop and it's heartbreaking given the year that 2020 was in episode 172 amira jessica shireen and myself decided to focus on our favorite, most happiest, most joyous sports stories of all time. Amira reviewed the hilarious McDonald's 1984 nightmare. Jessica relived the 1996 U.S. women's basketball team. I explained how I ended up nursing in front of Pelé. And Shireen tells us a charming story about soccer grannies from South Africa. Okay, let's tell each other some happy stories this week. I think we're going to go in chronological order. So, Amira, you are up first. Okay. (laughs) I'm really excited about this because I get to talk about one of my favorite random facts ever. So I want to talk about McDonald's and the 1984 Olympics. It's a situation I find specifically very hilarious. It brings me great joy thinking about it. I only can hope that it will do the same for you. So with the 1984 Olympics coming to Los Angeles, McDonald's joined in with the rise of corporate sponsors and came up with a fun marketing plan. Now you can compete in the Olympics too. Play McDonald's. When the U.S. wins, you win Olympic games and win up to $10,000 instantly. Or keep your cards. And when the U.S. wins your event, you win a Big Mac, regular fries, or a Coca-Cola. 
So go to McDonald's and get your game cards today. Because when the U.S. wins, you win. That's right. The plan was a scratch-off ticket that came with every order. And each scratch-off ticket had an event on it. And the medals corresponded with that. So if <laughs> if the U.S. won gold, you got a free Big Mac. Silver was French fries. Bronze was a Coca-Cola. So you see, exciting. When the U.S. wins, you win. Now here's where things went very, very wrong. Or very, very right, depending on, you know, if you were McDonald's or everybody else. Basically, they, McDonald's based their predictions on the 1976 Olympics, where the U.S. had come in third in medal count behind the Soviet Union and the East Germans. Yet many of you will see where this is going at this point. After 1980, when the U.S. boycotted the Olympics, the communist countries, they didn't show up to L.A. So the U.S. medal count shot all the way up. In 76, they had 94 medals, like roughly like 34 golds, right? 94 in total. In 1984, they took home 83 gold medals, 61 silver medals, and 30 bronze medals, a total medal count of 174 medals, leading to a complete and utter McDonald's meltdown. Headlines bemoaned the lack of food to fulfill all of the scratch-off tickets that won. Where is the Big Mac? It was a complete Big Mac shortage. Fries were sold out. The tales of folks who were like, I love the LA Olympics because I'm literally surviving off of McDonald's for a month. (laughs) Everybody, it became a running joke. And you might recall this joke even eventually making it to The Simpsons, where they parodied this when Krusty Krab offers a similar competition. Here's the end of the episode where Krusty Krab's owner has completely lost it because of his shortage. Welcome back to the final day of this, the 23rd Olympiad, brought to you by Krusty Burger. <laughs> you people of pigs! <laughs> I personally am going to spit in every 50th burger. I like those odds. <laughs> that was Homer Simpson taking the odds and why not? Every Everything was a winner. So while McDonald's has moved away from consumer deals like that, they remained a sponsor staple in the Olympic Village where athletes talked about how much they love McDonald's foods. But if you recall, at 2016, they had to limit the number of free Big Macs and McNuggets provided because the athletes were eating them out of house and home in the Olympic Village. So the McDonald's told the athletes that they could only order up to 20 items for free each day, which gives you a little window of how much McDonald's was being consumed in the Olympic Village. In 2018, after 41-year partnership with the IOC, McDonald's actually has ended their corporate sponsorship of the Olympic Games. So I guess we'll just have to wait and see what they cook up next. Oh, this is working. That made me very happy. Brenda, you remember this? Oh, oh, I do. I remember this and I had many a free thing. I eventually would go on. I love McDonald's so much. I would eventually go on six years later to get an early work permit on my 15th birthday and begin to work at McDonald's where I got free food and within six months was a vegetarian. <laughs> this, but this McDonald's game was like a highly, like 1984 was just such a year for me. I was nine. Uh, the Detroit Tigers won the World Series. There was the Olympics. And that McDonald's game, like, I, I don't know, but my lifespan is probably shortened because of it. I, I remember that, even though I wasn't eligible for any of it because we were inundated with American advertising. So I got all of this. And then you had all the Canadians that were 
so jealous as everything you guys kept winning because we never got any of that. I just love how you guys are like, I remember this. <laughs> I wasn't bored for another four years. Only you okay, think well, that's that... funny. Only you yeah. think that's <laughs> like, funny. I'm going to focus on I the story. <laughs> okay, well, I also have an Olympic story. Mine's personal. So my mom, Mary, and her wife, Sue, they used to live in Atlanta. And so they lived in Atlanta in 1996. And for anyone from Atlanta, they lived in Candler Park. They were near Little Five Points, right by the old, I think, Karis Bookstore has now moved, but it used to be right there. They were right in it. And so we went to the Olympics in 1996. And it was so much fun. We saw volleyball. We saw some gymnastics. We went and saw track and field in the stadium. And then we saw some basketball. And so it's funny because I was 15, 16, I was a teenager. And I only remember so much about it, which is kind of strange. I was pretty old for this moment. But I do remember specifically there were huge crowds, just the overwhelming feeling of the place. But I really, I remember the basketball. And this was really exciting. 1996, the U.S. women's team, they had won bronze in 92. And so for the first time... The US, so the U.S. decided they needed to be better. And for the first time, the team was composed of the best post-collegiate basketball players. Selected more than a year before the Games, they played 52 international games leading into the Olympics. They won all 52. So the hype was huge. And the players are people that you know so well. They're legends, right? Cheryl Swoops, Don Staley, Rebecca Lobo, and my favorite, Miss Lisa Leslie. I was a teenager. I was so tall. I was probably inching towards my six feet. I six feet tall now. I might have been six feet then. I had too much limb. I was so I was like arm and leg. And I wrote about this once. And what I said about it was that I was in that awkward body that I didn't yet know how to wear. But then I got to go to the Olympics and I saw these women play and they looked like me and I looked like them. And it's like I don't even know how to describe in words how affirming that was for me. I got to go and see this. And I talked to my mom, Mary, and her wife, Sue, yesterday. And here's their memory of this bit of it, starting with Sue. Part of the most fun was that we were able to bring you, Jessica Ray, because <laughs> just to see the joy on your face and also to see all the people looking at you because you were so tall and they thought maybe you're an Olympic player. <laughs> Yeah, because you were you were 16 years old and you were already really really tall. So we went to some early round action and it like it didn't even matter to me that we were sitting in like the nosebleed. The basketball was played in the Georgia Dome. I think we set up really really high. I think in one of those pictures that I sent to you yesterday, I think that was the women's basketball game and you can see how far up we were. <laughs> I love their voices so much. Uh this was a huge watershed moment in women's basketball as well. The American Basketball League, the ABL, and the WNBA started out of the popularity of this gold-winning USA women's basketball team and their success. And I just, it holds such a important place in my heart. Um, but to maximize the feeling of happiness, and I hope this is true for everyone else because this is my mom, uh, I want to end this with my mom talking about what it was like for her to experience the Olympics in 1996 in Atlanta, where she lived. Uh, I think the, the thing that I was so amazed about at the Olympics that we were actually at an Olympics. 
You know, that's where I, I couldn't hardly fathom it because I never thought I'd go to an Olympics. And then when we found out it was going to Atlanta, I thought, oh my gosh, you know, I can't believe we're going to get to go to an Olympics. And then all the people and just all the excitement and it was just like, oh, just the adrenaline flowed. I, I, I loved it. It was, I loved everything about it. I love how she said loved. Oh, it's so, <laughs> it's so adorable. So yeah, that is my story that I think of to make myself happy. Jessica Ray. That was lovely. Jay yep. Ray. Now everyone knows the secret is out. <laughs> my parents often call me JR. Oh. So I guess. I love that. I love that joyous. You know, my, my cousins are in Atlanta. And when I think of that, they were, they were quite close to the bombing. And, but now yeah. I have like a really positive image of the Atlanta Olympics to replace that. And that, that makes me very happy. Bren, you also have a personal story. I do. Once upon a time in April of 2014, Pele and I made each other cry. So I had been studying soccer for a long time already by then. My book was out. I had gotten tenure. I thought things were going to be good in my life. And the president of the university decided he wanted to have a major soccer conference. And I wasn't given a choice and I didn't want to do it. And in the same week, I found out that I was pregnant and it was a surprise and um, of course I'm happy now but at that time it did not um, fill me with unmitigated joy and (laughs) hope I was conflicted and worried and then the soccer conference came up and there ended up being four days of it 170 presenters from many many countries it was very much on me it was almost the 2014 World Cup in Brazil and I was super critical of it. I was critical of the money that it took to build it, the repression and the increased private security forces, changing of municipal laws, repression of Afro-Brazilian communities around Rio, Sao Paulo. And I was really conflicted and I was conflicted about Pelé. And so I was jaded. I was at this jaded moment, you know, where now I had to deal with this legend coming and it's so funny to think about it. I, I wasn't excited at all I had just a complete sense of dread anxiety I was so overworked I just could hardly get it together so the moment actually comes and imagine like I've written about this person a lot and so I am nursing my daughter And I'm trying to tell people like Grant Wall, like, oh, down the hall to the left while I'm nursing this baby Um, and 170 other people. I don't know how many people attended. There was a clinic for girls, you know, the whole thing. And the whole time I've got this baby and and then like every time I have to do something, Julieta, I'm like, uh, can someone hold my baby? She didn't want to be with anybody. And then there's the other two kids. Luna had an allergic reaction to amoxicillin, had to go to the hospital in between. I'm just like, so, okay, so you get it. So it comes to the ceremony. And I had really worked on my speech. I had bad Portuguese, but I gave it a shot. Pelé surgiu em meados do século XX. And I thought I came up with something that was at least somewhat poignant. The way that Pelé and his generation 
played the game held a mirror, not up to the actual world perhaps, but the aspirations that many millions of fans held. The international conference we've had here has given us an opportunity to reflect on how football gives us insight about class inequality, social injustice, gender, courage, solidarity, the human condition. And Brazil, as all nations, has lived with deep divisions and contests over their soccer legacy. But it also gives us pause, I think. What would the world look like if more national identities were founded on creative brilliance, grace, and engagement with the world, win or lose? So I looked over and Pelé is tearing up, right? And then I get through the Portuguese part. E assim trouxe alegria para os corações de muitos. And, so and, and then English, he's full on tearing up. And okay, then the degree is awarded and we go backstage and he just gives me this big hug and I'm just like crying because it's over, like it's done. I don't have to do anymore. And I went on to write just recently a piece where I was super proud and, and because I got to kind of re-examine his legacy and I feel so lucky and it was so special how every time I write about him, I'm just sort of beaming all the time. Like, hey, thanks, buddy. Yeah, Brenda's beaming right now. You all can't see it, but I can <laughs> I can see on across the Zoom the beaming. That was beautiful, Bren. Not many people can say they both kick set bladder and nurse in front of bed. <laughs> <laughs> Brenda Elsie, one of a kind. And this for, for everybody else, I met Brenda in 2015 at a conference, but for the longest time, the entire standard of a soccer conference was this one. And I was really sad that I met you after because the first question anybody asks in this world is, did you go to the conference at Hofstra? Is the first thing because she set the bar so high globally while nursing a baby. So hats off. I just think it's like maybe with this election and these happy stories and stuff, like I love thinking about the unjading. Like how how do you lose a little bit of cynicism again? Because it's really necessary. All right, Shireen, bring us home. The soccer grannies from South Africa. When Jessica put this in the document, I knew exactly what I was going to talk about. Because when I think of football, and I think of global football, I think of grannies from South Africa. This is my happy story. This is what I want to be. I want to be a granny one day who does this. This is an absolutely beautiful story about women between the ages of 55 to 84 in South Africa, in a specific region called Limpopo, and I heard about it by accident. And I heard about it about 10 years ago, 2010, this article, which we'll put in the show notes as well, I came across it. So basically, let me give you the background. This group was founded by community activist, Rebecca Natasawasi, aka Mama Beka from Limpopo. And she's a community organizer, she's an advocate, she's a philanthropist, and she campaigns for women in South Africa in order to bring attention to their plights for safety, security, economic independence. Now, Mama Beka was diagnosed with cancer in 2003, and one of the things that made her happy was football. So she started a group of women in her area to help them 
and to help them engage in a healthy, active lifestyle. Because the first thing we know, the first thing to go for women who carry so much on their shoulders all the time, work, family, mental health of everybody, they put themselves last. And sometimes the first thing to go is what people consider extra is self-care. And for her, for Mama Beka, football was self-care. So she got these grandmas started. Now, what I love about this is y'all are like, well, 55 to 84 is a huge, huge age range. Now, these some of these women did not have any knowledge beyond their normal consumption of football and cheering and supporting and fanning. So it was really flipping the script on what we think footballers can be and particularly in that region of South Africa what footballers look like because when you think of a footballer from South Africa you don't think of a black granny but guess what y'all you should so one of the greatest things about this is that Mama Becca's goal and her vision coming out of this was to start actually a world cup for the elderly or an African Grannies Cup. Now I had been following the story and the African Grannies actually traveled to the 2018 World Cup in Russia. And they got to be, uh, I mean, the word is mascot. That's how they refer to the people that walk the players on the field. So one of the qualifying matches, they actually did this. So I was like, okay, so this is good. I mean, unfortunately, some of the, the core team had passed away by 2018, but generally the squad was there. And we talked, I think there was 14 of them that went. What I didn't know, and if I knew this fact about 2019, the Women's World Cup in France, I would have made me and Jessica go. They actually traveled to France and played against a French women's team of elderly, Les Mamies du Football, it's called. And I did not know this. Otherwise, I certainly would have gone from Reims and that car that we rented and gone somewhere else to watch these grandmas. So these mamies were playing and I tried to find out what happened in the match and I wasn't able to do so. If any of you have any information at all about the Vakugelas, the Vakugelas of South Africa and what happened, please let me know because I actually, I, I, I can't find any follow-up information. What I hope to see moving forward is this joy. I love the idea of breaking down ideas of what normalcy is, like what is normalcy even. If you seek joy, you get joy from football. You get joy from random things in sport that you are connected to. We can't help what we fall in love with. And I fell in love with this entire story. A documentary was created by this and it was shown in New York Doc Film Festival and it was beautifully received. I wanted to play soccer because it's helped me a lot. The painful is better. So the sounds of joy, the sounds of the women, and you know, they go to the side of the pitch and you see in the, in the clip that they're taking off their shirts and they're wearing colorful bras and they're putting on their kits and lacing up their boots. It's like riveting. So hats off to the grandmas, the soccer grannies of South Africa. So if you're out there, you're going to play in the park, take your grandma with you. Shereen, I have all the faith in the world that you will be a soccer playing granny one day. <laughs> I, there's no doubt in my mind about that, in fact. Well, that's a wrap for our segments for this year. We want to thank you all for listening and remind you that you can find Burn It All Down anywhere really you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Burn It All Down Pod and on Twitter at Burn It Down Pod. You can email us at burnitalldownpod at gmail.com. 
and check out our website, www.burnitalldownpod.com, where you can find the previous episodes and transcripts and links to our Patreon. And speaking of our Patreon, we would like to thank our patrons for their generous support for this year. We really appreciate your support. I, I don't know how many times we can say that and say it in the exact same way, but it's true. It remains true. So on behalf of the entire crew, burn on and not out. Burn on,